This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18+. plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast, Albion Analysis. I'm Chris Hall and I'm joined by Pete from Albion Analytics Twitter account. And each week we will take a deep dive into some of the data around Albion's performances and the players. It won't be wall-to-wall numbers, don't worry, but we are both Baggies fans, so there'll be plenty of our thoughts on what is going on at the club. We'll just try to use the data to shape those thoughts. Pete's the expert on the data analysis, so I'll leave much of that in his expert hands. I'll give my thoughts on the current crop, and as a former club employee of some eight years, I will offer some stories from my time at the club when they feel relevant or if I'm just in a nostalgic mood. We've actually been sorting this pod out for a couple of weeks now and chose to record after the Preston game over a week ago. So we obviously had no idea how dreadful the first performance we would have to analyse would be. So apologies if this isn't the most upbeat pod we will ever do, but we can't control what the lads do on the pitch or don't do as the case was last night. Anyway, enough of my wittering. Pete, delighted to be finally doing this with you. How are you feeling today? Because I think we both described ourselves as feeling low and empty when we spoke after the game last night. Probably the worst performance we've seen all season was in the battering we got against Fulham. So yeah, not a good start to the pod really, is it? It's not. But as you say, uh, there's not a lot we can do to to control all that. But I mean, just from your point of view, what went wrong last night? Because I've seen a lot of people saying on social media they felt this was coming. Um, I'll be honest, I I didn't see this coming. I didn't see this level of or lack of level in a of, in a performance coming anytime soon from what had gone before. The- yeah, I was saying that I was I'm the same. I was going into it in high spirits after the Peter 
for a win. I thought maybe that'll give the players some confidence to uh, stop putting the ball in the back of the net a bit more. I mean, um, credit to Preston. They were very good, I thought. I thought they pressed us well and got in behind our behind the two wing-backs very well and stretched the play. But we just seemed to lack intensity a little bit and couldn't create. We couldn't get the ball forward and then we couldn't, couldn't get it in the box to good positions to create any chances. Is that all down to the absence of DK? Because you and I have been have been looking at a few numbers in the in the build up to this, and it does seem to suggest that we are a much better side when we have that focal point up front. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I we started with Phillips as a striker against Preston, obviously. And I think he received one pass inside the eighteen yard box compared to DK was obviously playing against a weaker opponent in Peterborough, but I think he received about four or five. So he just kind of gives us an option to attack the box with high crosses, as well as the low ones that we fizz across the the six-yard box. He just gives us more of an option to attack the box, as well as building up play a bit easier. Well, I mean, that's interesting that you bring that up there as well, because when I had a look look at the numbers, Preston yesterday, 60% of their shots inside of the box Ours, and they were eight, eight shots all off target, 75% of them from outside of the box. Now, it doesn't take an XG genius to work out that a shot outside of the box has less chance of going in than one inside of the 18-yard box does. No, exactly. And I think, I mean, talking about XG, I think it was one of the, there's a handful of performances where we didn't create more chances based on XG than the opponent. So those long shots really, I mean, they really don't offer us much. We've got Moet, who's probably, you could describe him as a long-range expert. Grant's been decent from outside the box, but, I mean, Robinson's most of, I don't think he's scored from outside the box, and he's probably taken the most shots. And that's, that, that is worrying. I mean, that, and, and I mean, just move, moving on to, uh, on to Callum Robinson and, and, and the forwards as well. But does that even work as a combination? Because we'll, I mean, we'll come to Grady Dean Garner in a minute, because I think both of us um, see him as one of the few positives. Um, I mean, he was one of many positives against Peterborough, but certainly last night he was probably the only positive if we're, if we're honest with ourselves. Um, but Robinson, Grant, Dean Garner or Grant, Dean Garner, Phillips, or any, basically any combination of those four as a three, does it work in the way um, that Val wants to play? I think it can do, but I think it's better suited to a more physical presence up front, for example, DK Wesley or Jordan Hugo, who I think he does offer quite a lot other than his uh, goal-scoring form this season, but in build-up and being a target in the box and a target for long balls to hit. And his actual combination play is not too bad. He likes the little one-touch passes once the ball's played into his feet. Kind of helps the players that like it shorter like Ronson. And then you also got people like Grant who's happy to stretch it in behind. I think in general, the the central striker has to, um, he needs that physical presence to really give us an, not really an out ball, but a target to hit when we're, going long from the defenders, even if it is on the floor, he can get his body in front of defenders and kind of pick up the ball in the final third and then get off to a, a more creative player to try and get the, the ball in the box. But I think the uh, physical presence is very important. 
you and I had what can only be described as quite a geeky conversation earlier about uh, when we both got quite excited about um, average position data and uh, and we, we were having a look at what who scored had got down for well actually went across quite a number of games and one thing that I found incredibly noticeable is that for the half a game um, or yeah half half a game against Peterborough that DK was on the pitch and for pretty much all the games when Hugel is on the pitch the two wide strikers who play either side of him whoever that might be Robinson Phillips Grant or Dean Garner get much much closer to the central man whereas when when we play though the, the guys who don't have a physical presence one of them is a number nine they're much more spread um wider and I mean surely it's when you are playing a style of football that that Val is surely it's got to be better to have somebody supporting the nine if the ball's going in quickly than not yeah well I think the trouble with those average positions can be that it's generally done off the passes so you sh- I mean um for example Grant even if it shows him as playing wide he might, might still be getting into the box for crosses and stuff, but because he's not completed a pass in there, it's not picked it up. But in general, I think it's more to do with the build-up that if we play with that DK Hugel that can have the ball maybe into their feet in the, you know, 30 yards out that we can build from, then you're going to need players around him just for a little layoff, and they're going to be the, the other two forwards. So they're going to play a little bit narrower, whereas if we don't have that physical presence, we kind of focus the build-up more in just overloading the wings. So obviously they've got to play wider and support Townsend or Furlong or whoever's playing in, in the wing-backs. I mean, we'll, we'll come back a little bit to um, uh, to last night in, in in a short while because I know we're going to have a, a, a bit more of a targeted conversation about the midfield and we, we, we intentionally haven't mentioned much about Livermore and Mowat at the moment because that is a conversation that you and I want to have about what is the best combination at the two central midfielders for Albion. But just looking at the bigger picture here, that is five points from the last six games, I know there's a lot of calls for, for for Val's head, which is understandable, to be honest, after after that performance last night. You know, most managers who turned in a performance like that or most managers whose team turned in a performance like that against 15th in the league at home would have to face a level of vitriol. There's no two ways about that. I think the reality of the situation is that Albion have not only invested a lot of money initially in Valerian Ishmael, paying the um, compensation to get him out of Barnsley, then giving him a long-term contract, but then they've also doubled down on him in January by spending an awful lot of money to get the man that he's always wanted as a centre-forward and putting him on a long-term contract at the moment. This is not a position on whether or not I think he should stay as uh, as manager. Um, as I've always said on that one, I am undecided as to whether Val is, uh, Val is the man long-term for us or not. But I think the reality of the situation is that he will be our manager in certainly the short to medium term because the club have put so much stock into him and so much money into him. So the the fact is, I think we need to find a way to win with this manager, I mean, is it as simple as we just need to replace DK or is there something bigger going on here? Is the I've spoke on Twitter about issues with the mentality of the squad um, and we'll talk about the stats around the last three seasons in a moment. But what do you think, Pete? Is it, 
is do do you honestly do you have faith in in this manager finding a way to a way to win with this group of players or does he absolutely positively need that dk replacement to get the consistency that he craves well i mean it might be unpopular and i might be one of the few Albion fans that think it but I'm, i've still got faith in ishmael that he'll turn the turn the results around if he's given time but regardless of that i think we could do with a replacement for dk i think if i'm not really sure what's going on with Hugel at the minute i'm Hearing a lot of things. I mean, again, an unpopular opinion, but I think he could could definitely play as that number nine for the uh, ten or eleven games, or however long DK is meant to be out for. But I won't be against another signing just to probably on loan for six months, just to kind of fill that fill that gap. I mean, I'm with you on Hugel, by the way. I I, I know you, you I you know as we both know, it's not a popular opinion to say positive things about Jordan Hugel, and his goal record speaks for itself. It's it's terrible, and and his xG ratio is awful. And um, and look, one goal from I think thirty shots he's taken this season, which is the most in the championship, is not is not a good return. Nobody is denying any of those stats. But the simple fact is that when we have someone of that ilk, and I'm not saying it has to be Hugel, because by no means do I think it has to be Hugel. But when there is somebody of that ilk in the centre-forward position, as opposed to any one of three of the other four guys that we've got, we just look at our team. And, and the numbers show that we, we, we are a better team. And I think, largely speaking, so do the results. Yeah, and the, um, the thing with Hugel is, as you say, is his goal record isn't great. And I don't think he's a natural finisher, but I think given time, if you keep getting into the right areas, he will score goals, even if it's not a fantastic right. But he gets in the areas and he helps us build up play. But he also does a lot of work off the ball. He's definitely not lazy and he's quite intelligent with his pressing, pressing blindsided players so that he doesn't know that they don't know he's coming. And I think he's very useful in a defensive mind as well, rather than just the, um, the attacking mind, because obviously goal scoring isn't his forte, but I think he's a, he can be an asset to the team. And when you talk about that defensive element, I think that was extremely visible away at Coventry um, when he came on for the latter part of that game. And I thought at a time when we were hugely under the cosh, and I know, uh, by the way, uh, uh, you know, recognise the elephant in the room that Pete and I are sitting here talking about a centre forwards defending ability. I know that's not what anybody wants to hear, but you've it's just acknowledging that there are elements that he brings to the side. And to be honest, at times, I'm seeing very little return generally out of the others. I, other than Grant, they largely don't score goals. Um, Robinson's assists actually aren't too bad, to be fair. Grady's been a lot better the last couple, uh, couple of games. But if you actually look on the whole as to what somebody brings to that side, you can make an argument for Grant because double figures speaks for itself. And you can make an argument for Grady over the last couple of games. I think you struggle to make an argument for the other two. Yeah, and I put out um, a tweet the other day about Robinson and his his numbers. And he's actually very high compared to other championship forwards in terms of his XG and his expected assists, as well as his actual goals and assists. So it's, it's there, but I just... I think we lack a lot of stuff as a team when he plays as the central man. And I'm I'm not a big fan of his off the right. So it kind of leaves that left position, which Grant's obviously got nailed down because he's pretty sure he's our top scorer. Pete, is, is that is that ultimately when when we when we look at this, that 
we're looking at this and saying, where's the problem here? It, you know, a lot of people are saying the problem's the manager. A lot of people, a, a, a lot of other people, and some of the same people are saying the problem's the players. And is perhaps the the problem has been that due to chopping and changing of man, managers pretty consistently over the last five years, that we've actually ended up with just a really, really unbalanced squad. I mean, you, 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 you've talked about our forwards there. The reality of our forwards is three of them, their best position is wide on the left. Grady, Grant, Robinson. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think the problem runs a lot deeper than just Ishmael, who, I mean, I personally don't see him as a problem, but I'd say most fans now do. We don't, I'm not entirely sure what Ken's official role is, but apart from that, we don't we don't have a director of football or anything like that to really lead the, the vision of the club, which is kind of what I think Ishmael's been brought in for. But if we do sack him, then, then where do we go? And say we bring in a manager that's completely different style, he might come in and say, oh, actually, I don't want Daryl DK as my forward and we've just wasted seven million on him or whatever. Yeah, I mean, for me, for me, fundamentally, that is the problem, um, is that the structure of the club has not been anybody's focus. And I actually think, you, you know, you say there that, that Val's been brought in to lead the, um, the almost the, the drive forward of what this club is. I think that's a cop out, personally, from from the people at the top of the club, if that is the case. And uh, looking at the recruitment, it seems like a lot. Uh, the, the more premium signings, if you were, just seem like they they have been Val's men. So if everything is being led by the manager, that is such an outmoded way of running a club. I mean, obviously, I was at the club at the time that Dan Ash was was uh, was there, and whilst we had some excellent managers during that time, and I'm not decrying the job that any of the uh, any of them did, the people and the structure around the manager was consistent and it was always there. And you knew that as one manager came out, another would come in, um, but the people around them were good and they were there to support them. And it's why we had consistent Premier League football through, you know, a very good start under Robbie Di Matteo, then Roy coming in for 18 months before going to England and then Steve Clark coming in. And it's not a surprise that, as Dan went out the door, things started to go a bit a bit more awry. I, you know, I, I, it does worry me if their focus has been Valerian Ishmael can run this project from from top to bottom. I just that's not a criticism of Ishmael. I just don't think that's a manager or a head coach, as most of them are called now. I just don't think it's their role anymore in the modern day. And I think I, I think people like. Ken need need to have a better idea of what a structure of a football club needs to look like. That's spot on, mate. And it's yeah, it's just kind of a bit of a mess in that respect because I mean, I think as a football club, the manager should be fairly easily replaceable. So if if things do turn sour and you need a you need a change, then you should have someone above him who's make who's planning for the future of the club and has got his eyes on a manager that is a similar style. So he can come in smooth, very incredibly smoothly, take over with the same set of players and pick up from where the, well, hopefully better than the, the last manager left off. But that really comes down to planning from higher up in the club. Definitely shouldn't be Ishmael's role to to run well, what's basically the whole the whole club. Because, I mean, if you do decide to sack him, then, well, you lose everything from the club. You use the, lose the entire brains of it and the entire plan. You just start from scratch with a, a mix and match group of players. 
Absolutely. And, and, the, and the other thing is, in terms of style of play, and this has been my problem through the whole lie regime, is that we have gone, Darren Moore had, had his way of playing, which was very much based around number 10s. Then you have Slavon Bilic come in, which was a number 10, but a lot of pace in, in the team, running through the whole team, really. But then you get rid of him and you bring in Sam Allardyce, who plays a completely different way of, of playing. And OK, largely he only brought players in, in on loan um, other than Snodgrass. So it didn't have that much impact in the long term in terms of our recruitment. But then you bring in Ishmael, who is different again, and it is completely different. And by the way, you know, it's worth mentioning that Tara Moore comes off the back of Pulis and then Pardew, who couldn't be more different as much of a disaster as Pardew was. It still wasn't any sort of a obvious replacement for that. What is our plan for the way the club wants to play long term? Because regardless of who the manager is, you, as you say, you can interchange the manager if the manager is always the same sort of style. And this was always my concern with bringing in Valerian Ishmael, is that effectively you are bringing in Valerian Ishmael to play Val Ball with Slavon Bilic players. And I don't see how that's ever going to work. And is there anybody at the club who has just nailed down, as Dan Ashworth did very, very strongly with his DNA, of this football club has nailed down. This is how I want this football club to play. Not this season, not next season, but for the next 10 years. No, I don't think anyone has really, have they? Because I mean, if you want long-term success as a club, then you've got to, you've got to plan long-term. There's no point just chopping and changing managers every few years and just hoping that you can have a run of games. I mean, Watford have done it for the last couple of, well, probably about four or five years, but, They've kind of had a bit of a downfall and then been, I mean, down and then up again and possibly looking like they're going down again this season. I think if you want to have a, a steady trajectory as a club and long-term success, then you've got to got to really plan for it. I think Bright, Brighton's a good example of it at the minute. They're, um, I mean, they, they had a bit of a switch of a start from Chris Hewton to, I think they went straight to Graham Potter, but they're, I mean, they're planning and they've got good recruitment. And as you say, I can only, only say that that's linked back to to Dan Ashworth and that and ultimately that, that seems to be the consistent factor when you look at a club of that size getting getting that sort of success and I mean you mentioned Watford there but the difference with with someone like Watford chopping and changing the manager is that because their owners own multiple clubs they basically have three clubs worth of players Three, I think they've got. I think they own three clubs. Not hundred percent on, not too brushed up on Watford's owners, but I know they own multiple clubs, and they can just move players around as suits them to who is whoever is the most important project at the time. And when Watford are in the Premier League, they will always be the most important project out of the clubs that they own because there's more money in the Premier League than there is in any other league. We can't do that. So chopping and changing the manager when you haven't got that kind of pool of players to to fish in just doesn't work. The midfield pairing, because I think a lot of people looked last night, saw Moat come back in and 
it didn't it was certainly wasn't one of his better days let's let, let's put it that way it certainly didn't seem it from from the eye test anyway and livermore didn't have the game that he had against against Peterborough either. and to be honest not not that they were alone as i said earlier i think probably grady aside i think you'd struggle to find anybody that that did have a decent game last night when when i went through who scored's numbers they they have a section for um uh, strengths and the, uh, the the section simply says no visible strengths under West Bromwich Albion, which was which was a pretty damning thing to have written on on a website about you. But just looking at it, um, I mean, obviously the previous game it was Reach and Livermore. Now, when I looked at the the, the, the data here, it seemed like Reach played a lot of long balls from that um, f- from that area, but quite a lot of accurate ones. So it was three out of six were accurate um, long balls. Jake just seemed to sit in. Reach was a bit further forward. Whereas last night, it did seem like Jake and Moat were almost doing the same role. And when I went through the rest of the games, and we can go through them in a bit more detail in, in a minute, but it appeared that where there are combinations that aren't Livermore and Moat, there seems to be more differentials between the two central midfielders than Moa and Livermore. I think what in a really complicated and long-winded way, Pete, what I'm trying to say is, to my eye, it appears that those two are a, a bit too similar at the moment in what they are giving to the side. I don't necessarily think either of them, th- there's anything that wrong with what either of them are doing other than last night where they were both terrible and everybody was. But I, I think... Uh, I, I just, I'm not convinced that they work as a partnership. What do you think? Again, I'm not completely convinced. I think, um, I think both of them have had very good games at points in the season. But as a, as a pair, I've never really looked at them both and said that they've been incredible in that game as a pair. Generally, it's kind of one has a very good performance, and the other one maybe you don't notice as much. I think Moet's probably our best midfielder. I mean, I think he's the best on the ball and best in his forward passes is long passes, um, which are obviously very important in, in um, what we do. But I think Livermore kind of maybe adds that kind of leadership that you need in a team that you can't really measure too easily. But I quite, I really like watching, I think it was Moa and uh, that played alongside Gordon Hickman in midfield against Coventry. I think a lot of people would agree with that, that that was a, a really good performance from the both of them. And Gordon Hickman kind of just offers that more, he offers... He carries the ball a bit better. He'll, he'll dribble past the player and play quick pass and just be a bit more direct with his running on the ball. I mean, no, a little more. They don't really, really carry the ball. They've kind of just look for the pass, look for the pass long, or, you know, offload it to a centre-back and recycle it. They don't really try and beat a player, which Gordon Hickman did did offer against Coventry. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because when, when I was doing my research, I came up with the same thing. Because actually, what's, what's odd is... If you actually look for pass completion numbers, that game against Coventry, they're not good for Moa and uh, and Gardner Hickman. Both of them are in the mid to high 60% for pass completion rate, which when you actually look at some of the other numbers around, I mean, Malumbi, who gives the ball very simple, is largely in the 80% every game he plays. So it's and and Moat's numbers are normally quite a lot higher than that. But the big thing that Gardner Hickman brought into that game was four completed dribbles from midfield which is way more than you ever you ever see from any of the other midfielders as you say he just he just drives us on but what i also found quite interesting 
as you say, average position data, it's a difficult one because players have to touch the ball or, com- or complete a pass or whatever. But when you actually look at Furlong's average position data as well in that Coventry game, he's so much higher than he normally is, probably because he's caught Gardner Hickman, n- n- knowing that the guy plays fullback as well, can slot into that position. And you actually look at Gardner Hickman's defensive numbers for that game against Coventry. He's got the equal most interceptions in the team. He's got the equal most tackles made. And and he's also got uh, the equal most clearances as well. I think pretty much all of those stats were alongside Connor Townsend. So what he gives to you defensively, even though he drives you forward, is massive. And he allows the fullback on that side to get forward so much more, which inevitably, if Furlong can get high on that side, what it allows is the right-sided forward to come in a bit narrower and be nearer to the the number nine. I I just think there are so many positives to Taylor Gardner-Hickman in the central role that I just don't think anybody else out of the midfielders or out of the players that we've got who can play central midfield can offer this team. Yep, and I can... I completely agree with that. He very much gives us a different option. But then you've got the other as- aspect of, can you really ask a, is he 21 maybe, to a 21-year-old to um to really hold a midfield two in a championship promotion push? I mean, it's a, a massive amount of pressure generally, but even more so with the, the state of the, well, the results and the support at the minute, it's not a, an easy atmosphere to play in. But I was looking at the, looking at notes numbers in particular, and, the thing that really stands out is his progressive passes. I mean, he registers around about nine a game, which is, I mean, one of the top rankings in the championship for central midfielders. I mean, uh, Jason Malumbi is about five and Livermore's about six and a half. But not only that, he also is the highest of them all for accurate progressive passes. So he not only does he attempt to move us up the pitch for his passes a lot more than the other two options, he also does it a lot more successfully. So I think in that respect, he's kind of probably the key midfielder there. Because other than Moet, we've only really got Townsend that really progresses us forward. Um, apart from the, the long balls that just go over the top, which obviously aren't accurate. And I can I completely get that. I, I, I think, to be honest, when we went through the data, I think we were probably both a little bit surprised. Because... I'm I'm one of these fans that uh, that that thinks that Mowat has not played particularly well for a number of weeks, but when you look at the numbers, they don't really reflect that. And in truth, as you say, he, he, he you can almost see why Val sees him as as the key because he's the one trying to make things happen going forward. I just wanted to raise one other that. I mean, he's obviously frozen out at the moment for whatever reason. But I mean, first of all, what's interesting is when you look at the good results we've had recently, none of them have Livermore and Mowat as the midfield two. Peterborough 3-0, Breach and Livermore. Reading 1-0, Mowat and Malumbi. Coventry 2-1, Taylor Gardner-Hickman and Mowat. Bristol City 3-0, Snodgrass and Malumbi. And I just wanted to highlight a bit on on Snodgrass that he gives us something that none of the rest of them do. He we, we had five shots from our central midfielders in that Bristol City game. And don't get me wrong, I'm not ignoring the fact that Bristol City were woeful. 
but you've as much as as much as we were woeful last night you've got to give Preston credit for being good when we make another team look awful you've got to give us credit for playing well I mean I thought we played very well against Bristol City and I thought a lot of that was down to Snodgrass being so dynamic he had three shots on goal Malumbi had two um but also he put nine crosses into the box from wide areas Hugel started up front in that game should have had a hat trick obviously had one but should have had a had a lot more but when you put Snodgrass in that team especially if you can get that focal point center forward I mean uh, we might be talking about something that is utterly pie in the sky here because again he looks like a player that has been completely written off but he just seems to contribute quite a lot and quite a lot that that no one other than probably probably reach in terms of accurate balls into the box from that central midfield area actually contributes. He's very similar to Mo in a way. He likes to play forward and he's got that bit of quality to play forward as well. You know, he's got, he can pick an accurate pass and can also cross a good ball in. So I think he would be, I think it'd be useful to have him in the squad, but I wouldn't have him as a starter. I think he'd be a good backup to Mo if he's gets another red card or picks up an injury or whatever. But the other thing with Snodgrass, I think, which we might talk about later, is his character. He seems to be a real... A, he really... He's desperate to win every single game. And he's going to push himself there and take other players with him to, to really fight for those those three points. And, uh, well, let, look, let's move on to that because that is something that we have... that we, we've discussed off-air is the character of this squad. I mean, it's interesting to, when, when you look at look at the numbers for the last three seasons and... This run that we're having at the moment, I mean, wh- whether or not it is a freak coincidence or not, it seems to come every year around the same sort of, sort of dates. I mean, the eight games without a win in the last promotion season under Slav came between the 21st of December and the 1st of, uh, 1st of February. Our current run of uh, run of form, I mean, takes you back to the 11th of uh, December, we beat Reading. So, uh, so after that, um, we've took five points from the last six games. In the same period under Bilic, at this time of the year, we took eight points in nine games. And then even in the Premier League, and OK, it's a much more difficult league. But when you actually look at how we played uh, from February onwards, and obviously players came in, I understand that. But we didn't just lose games during this period. We were getting hammered in a lot of games, particularly at home. We were getting absolutely, uh, absolutely smashed by the likes of Arsenal. We took six points in 10 games from mid-December to the first week of February. Now, that makes me ask a certain amount of questions. First of all, do we set a squad up to be ready for an intense period of the season? Do we, ha- do we give ourselves the depth that we need to be ready? Because obviously the period we're talking about is when there is an awful lot of games. Or do we get it a little bit wrong in, in the summer window and we almost wait around for January to supplement it. Obviously, in the in the promotion season, the likes of Robinson and Grisicki came in. Um, Robinson, in particular, was an important player for us. In the Allardyce half a season, we obviously brought in uh, Dianya, Snodgrass, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, and Yukoslu. Or is it the fact that this team is just a bit mentally weak as a group of players? And this team is... The, the core of this team has been the same for these three runs of form that have come through the December through to February. And does it just lack the leaders in the squad to pull us 
out of bad runs of form. And I have to say, if I was going to nail my colours to the mast of one of those three theories, of course, Pete, as you rightly pointed out off air, there is a fourth theory that it's all just a massive coincidence. But if if I was to nail my colours to the mast of one of those four theories, I would probably suggest that this squad lacks a bit of the mental strength that is required. And you might well be right. I mean, the, uh, the fourth theory is a bit of a boring one, isn't it? Not much of a story to uh, just a coincidence every time, but there's definitely a visible drop around this period. And I mean, I might tend to agree with you that we do maybe lack that couple of players that that can really push the squad when we're times are tough and things aren't going our way and we're in a little bit of a rut, not one for a few games. You just need to really drag the rest of them with them and really fight for those three points. And I mentioned that. I mean, I don't obviously don't know the players, but Snodgrass seems like he's that kind of player, which we're obviously missing out from. Even if he was just in the dressing room on match days, I think he would he would offer that bit of bit of support that's going to get the players going and really up for the fight. I think you can give a bit more insight, maybe to to the kind of players needed from your time at the club and what sort of players we had at, when you were at the club. I mean, as you say, uh, it, it's it's worth caveating that I don't I don't know any of the any of the current crop. When Brunton Morrison left, they were the last ones that, that that I had worked with and therefore knew personally. But when I was at the club, I mean, what, certainly, I I left um, by the time we got relegated. But I would suggest that letting Jonas Olsen go in that January was a contributing factor to the de- the steady decline that saw us eventually go down because he was a real leader. And obviously Darren Fletcher had gone the summer before for personal reasons, understand why he went, but we didn't really replace that true leadership position that, that he, that he had got in that squad. We've had leaders all the, uh, all the way through uh, during, uh, during my time at the club. We've, we've had, we've had good, strong characters going back to when I first came into the club and you've got uh, people like Paul Robinson, Jonathan Greening was a massive personality around the place. He wasn't what you you know a traditional leader um, in the in in the sense of being a real tub thumping guy. But what he what he was was a massive massive personality around the squad and somebody that the other players did look up to. As I say, you've got Paul Robinson was a big personality. Kevin Phillips was just an absolute example to people in the way he conducted himself, as was Chris Brunt and people like Ben Foster, another big, big character, you know, not what I would call, you know, the the kind of Roy Keane, Patrick Vieira type, vein pulsing in your head type leader. But again, another big, strong personality who wanted to get out on that pitch and win. I don't necessarily see a lot of those kind of characters in this squad. I mean, Jake's worn the armband for the last couple of years and uh, does he lead by example? The, guy, the the guy's record getting sent off in important games doesn't suggest that he necessarily does because that's that's not that's not really what leaders do, certainly not with any consistency. I'll always go back to that Villa game, you know, and going in like that on I think it was Courtney Hawes or whoever it was over over on that over on that far side. It was not sort of thing that that that, that leaders do. And, and I look around the rest of the squad and I think where are, where are the personalities? And I, it does it does worry me a little bit that that Val has marginalised somebody like Robert Snodgrass, who when you speak to other players around the game and 
you know, I've never met Robert, but I've heard positive things about him. Um, obviously, he and Graham Dorans were together at Livingston when they were young players, and I was at the club with uh, with, with with Dozer, and he always had good things to say about uh, about about Snodgrass. And I, I you know, I it, it seems like he is one of very few really really strong characters. Probably Mowat is the other one, and I can understand for that reason why he continually is in the side. I, I, I wonder who else we've got in that mould to really drag us forward. And, you know, I mean, we, we talk a bit about data on this on this pod, Pete, but that, that is really where the intangible comes in, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Nearly impossible to measure it, really. But with Jake, I think he has got that character about him, and he, he can lead by, examples, by example in games. You see him... When times are tough, he really gets up for it. He, he will fight for every ball. The issue that you did mention is that sometimes it can be over the top and lead to him getting sent off and getting in trouble, which is what we don't need. But I can definitely see why he's the captain. I think Bartley offers it a little bit at the back, but not as obviously in your face as, like you mentioned, the the Roy Keane type. I think he he's kind of in charge back there to organise the, the back three. But Dara O'Shea, from what I've seen of him, he seems to be another that maybe does possess that real desire and fight to win with a, as well as having the personality to kind of be infectious with everyone else. Obviously, he's been out of the, the squad for what must be maybe four months or something. So him coming back could be a real boost to the dressing room. Yeah. And I think, I think again, you know, we look at, we look at our defensive numbers and they're not bad, but as you say, you bring somebody like Dara back in and he could just be such an enormous fillip for this side in terms of what he demands from other players. Um, and, I, I, you know, I always think that that is, that, uh, that is one of those sort of intangible things. That, you know, it was, it was one of those things. We talked about earlier about Shane Long. And one thing that people always used to say to me at the time about, uh, about Shane and when he went was that something that we lost was how Shane just raised the level in training every single day because he trained like he played. He, he, he trained with that energy. And if you went out onto a training field and Shane Long was out there, you knew you had to be training like it was a match day, a cup final to keep up with Shane, because that's how he goes out onto a football pitch and he doesn't care whether it's, a Sunday League Park or Wembley in a cup final, it's all the same to him. He go he goes out with the same mentality. And I think I think there's an element with of that with Dara. And it, it's not it, it's very easy to sit here and say, oh, players should be at that level no matter what, because they get paid X amount of money. But the reality is when somebody drags that extra five percent out of you. It's the same as it's the same as in the gym. You know, you, you could you can only if if you're working out on your own, you can only push yourself to so hard. But if you are if you're going for a run and you're running a ne- next to somebody and you try and you're trying to beat them, or if you are there with a personal trainer and they're going, come on, five more, five more, whatever, it just drags that extra bit out of you. And that's what characters like Shane did, and I'm pretty sure it's the way it's the way Darren is as well. And let's well let's finish up with with a positive because it's been a pretty depressing week, Pete. But one of the positives over the last, I mean, there's plenty of positives against Peterborough, but the, but one of the positives that has ran across the two games, and probably the only positive that's ran across the two games, 
is Grady Dean Garner, who really does look back back to his best. And uh, and you know, we were we were saying when we went to do the data, it had a hundred percent pass completion rate, which was quite impressive. Yeah, hundred hundred percent pass accuracy. The only thing that could be counted as not being was um he put a cross in that no one got on to the end of. But I mean, he was brilliant in just he just kind of set the pace a bit more than anyone else was. He'd get on the ball, he'd make a little short pass to someone, receive it back, a little one-two, and just maybe take someone on, just kind of quicken up the play a bit and offer that just something different, something to to excite the fans a bit and kind of disrupt their structure. And it seems that, I mean, it seems like he was told to just get on the ball as much as he could. And if that is the case, then I can't blame the management for that because when he's playing as good as he was in that first championship season that we had him, that's what you want. You want him on the ball, you want him running at players, little combinations, and just enjoying his football as much as he can. Because, I mean, when he does enjoy his football, you can see it and you can it rubs off on the fans because he'll, he'll take someone on, he'll not make someone, he'll do, I mean, he can do anything with the football. But he just need, he seems to need that confidence that he's lacked. And maybe Ishmael's tough love um, last week has, has uh, ignited a spark in him or something. But fingers crossed, he carries on with it because when he's when he's on top of his game he's just brilliant to watch he's definitely our most exciting player when he's playing at his best absolutely let's let, let's hope that Grady is indeed back and I think that because it has been such a such a fairly miserable week is a good place to leave it because it's it, it's a little bit of a positive but we will be back to have a look at the Mill game after that and let's hope we've got a much more positive things to say after that one but that's all we've got time for today however if you've enjoyed what you've listened to please do spread the word we're a new podcast and we'll be able to keep doing what we're doing by the wonderful Albion community spreading the word of our little pod because as much as Pete and I enjoy these these chats we could do it without the headphones and the microphone if if nobody's going if nobody's going to listen I could I, I could ring him up and bore him um, rather than do it in this forum so please do spread the word give us a share on your socials give us a positive rating and a nice comment wherever you're listening to us just spread the word if you think this is good and something that you want to hear more of and if you want to follow us you can always uh, give us a tweet drop us a follow pete is at analytics wba and i am at cj hall 83 so thanks for listening everybody and up the baggies Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with the McNuggets share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.